Q&A number three was presented by Carl Kinbar on August 5, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Ron actually is asked if I would answer the questions since he didn't give a talk, but he only asked questions himself. Unless you want to ask questions about his questions, <laughs> then I guess the guy, because I took both halves of the time. Yes, Jenny. My question is, if it was baseless hatred for both temple destructions, or was it baseless hatred for the second temple? Uh, I think it's usually the second. You, uh, that's a good question, though. I don't know. No, I would say that actually the first one has got to be idolatry. So when you were saying that there were Jews that were wondering why, how could God allow the temples to be destroyed, from a Gentile perspective, I see that we benefited from that destruction, the dispersion, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess what would be the Jewish thinking that had they not been destroyed, how would Gentiles be blessed through the nation of Israel. Oh, that's a totally different topic. And I've got a lot to say about it, too. But how about if we put that off and see if there are questions more about how Matthew uses the, the passage? It's a great question, though. Putting together your initial statement about this wasn't a two-minute conversation. It was a... I'm looking at Matthew yes. 9. And thinking about that and rereading the verses... I'm wondering, the Pharisees were complaining to the disciples, not to to Jesus. And then Jesus heard this, and then he gave his teaching. I'm wondering if it's possible at all he wasn't directing it to the Pharisees, but instead was instructing his disciples at a later point. Yes, that's possible. Interesting, because I've also considered that, and you can read it that way. And if that's the case, then he wanted his disciples to know what he was doing in advance of appointing them as apostles. That is right. right and then but then, of course, he leaves the question unanswered, the Pharisee's question, which is, why is your teacher doing this? And even further, if you think as a teacher, first he's teaching his disciples privately, and then he again uses it again with the Pharisees to demonstrate. Yeah, Jesus did it both ways. Sometimes he taught his disciples privately and then publicly or the other way around, so I'm not sure about that. But uh, it seems to me he's answering the Pharisees' question whether he's directing it to them or the disciples can't prove. I think you're right that you all read that passage. He heard that they had said he might have spoken then to the people he heard it from and not from them. Does it say anything more in Luke or Mark? Because I didn't look that up. Okay. They're descriptions of Scampier. No, Chesed. Yes? Would you please retrace the analogy of Jesus as the physician specifically as you connect it to the Hosea passage? Okay. 
I believe that Jesus was responding to the Pharisees' question, although it's possible he was directing his teaching to those he heard it from, or both of them together, we don't know, directing them to go to hope to and learn what this means. Whether he was possibly teaching it to the Pharisees or to his disciples to explain to them what his calling was and what theirs would soon be as uh, apostles, that was the place to go to learn. And in Hosea, we saw that there were two passages, possibly six, one to three, and then four to the end of the chapter, but they're related to each other in some way. And the first one, he's present, Hosea is saying, is exhorting Israel to come and to be healed. And there's a lot of that in Hosea about God wounding, the prophets wounding, and God being the one who heals them. And he will be faithful, in verse 3, to respond to you if you press on to know the Lord in this way. And I believe right there is the service is calling in a nutshell. That's what he was doing. But as you continue on with verses 4 through 11 in chapter 6, this was the diagnosis of Israel in those times and by analogy in Jesus' time. And that is God desires chesed. He desires the knowledge of God, but they don't have any. So that's what I believe Jesus was explaining, what he was doing by coming, healing, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, which is also called the gospel of you know, repent and, and believe, or repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those terminologies, that was all done out of God's chesed to wound and to heal Israel and to bring them back. But apparently the only ones who responded immediately were his disciples and these tax gatherers and sinners who understood because they saw what their problem was. And it says in Hosea, they saw that they were sick. They saw that they were wounded, but they went to the wrong places. But these tax gatherers and sinners went to Jesus. Thank you. You said we could save until the question time. You were going to maybe talk about the differences between the sacrifices as used in Hosea and the sacrifices used in Jesus' time? Yeah. I think that it's clear in Hosea they were idolatrous. You look at every you follow, there's no way that you can construe any of them mentioned individually as not being idolatrous. The only possible exception would be Hosea 6.6, but would that make sense? I think he's referring to their whole practice and understanding of sacrifice. In Israel, Jesus' day, and Matthew's, well, the question is whether Matthew actually was publicly released before or after the destruction. So let's just say, I'm assuming it was before, that in that day there were sacrifices going on, but also misconceptions about sacrifice. If you read the early descriptions of what is appropriate sacrifice, the vast, vast majority of them are based on doing things properly. And it's fine to do things properly, but there's a lack of emphasis on the condition of the heart. It's treating sacrifice sort of as a formal requirement or something that would produce a certain result regardless of your purpose in offering it or your demeanor. In it. There were also, as you'll remember, all this commercial stuff going on in the temple that Jesus was quite upset about, and also the issue that Earl brought up about the illegitimacy of the high priesthood at the time. So that whole thing that was going on there was a real mess in many ways, and you weren't going to solve your problem in that day by simply doing things right in that. So I think that is the difference and the, the way the analogy works. Is that, you know? Carl, this is a repeat question from our group this morning, but I really appreciated your answer. So I'm really asking it on behalf of the general group 
so that they can hear your answer, but paralleling what David writes in Psalm 51 when he talks about the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, which is similar to what we see in Hosea. Would you comment, as you did this morning, because you also made sense for me in that passage what follows that, the sentences that follow that. Yeah, Psalm 51. The words that are usually quoted are, you do not desire sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, 51.16. Otherwise, I would give it. Well, you'll remember what David did that he's referring to in this psalm. It says, when Nathan the prophet came into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so there is no sacrifice for that. And the idea that you can simply, if you committed a sin, even if you've committed a grievous sin and then repented of it, you just go to the temple and offer sacrifice is a false conception of what's going on in the Torah and what it specifically says. Sacrifices, there's no sacrifice for murder or for adultery. Those are the two things that David committed there. If there had been, he would have offered it, he said. But there wasn't. Excuse me, if you had desired it, and I would think the reason God doesn't desire it is twofold. First of all, because there is no sacrifice for those things. And second, because David was not yet in the place where he could have offered one anyway. So you're not pleased with sacrifices. Otherwise, I would give it. Or you are not pleased with burnt offering. That's the same pair that we see in Hosea, interesting enough. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will despise. Now, you see, the sacrifice, it specifically says in several places in Leviticus, that the sacrifice stands in for the person. And that the person has to have the right, I forget the language exactly, has to have the right intention in offering the sacrifice. Otherwise, the sacrifice does not stand in for them, even though it's offered. So in this case, he couldn't offer the sacrifice. All he could do was offer up his heart and his spirit. But then it continues. By your favor, do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So the psalm could not be saying that God does not desire sacrifices or burnt offerings under any circumstances because clearly, unless God disapproves of verse 18 and 19, David is saying at a certain point when the walls of Jerusalem are built up, which I believe refers to physical and spiritual, then there will be righteous sacrifices offered, and, but they could not be offered for murder and adultery. And you find in all the prophetic passages and in the Psalms where it seems to be saying that God doesn't desire sacrifices, doesn't want them, don't do that sort of thing. It's always in this context that either no sacrifice can be offered or has been designated for the sin or because the people's attitude is not correct. Because the Torah about sacrifices just remained in effect until the temple was destroyed. Granted, this is not the usual thing you're talking about, is it? And I realize how strange it is, but it's important stuff to realize that the Torah is still there and but God is looking for matters of the heart. He's, he's focusing on matters of the heart. So after the temple was destroyed, they made a decision not to do no sacrifices, apparently. How come they, wouldn't, they didn't haul out the tabernacle and renew the sacrifices? They could have. Well, no, they couldn't for two reasons. First of all, I think they were prevented from getting in, and it's hard to say what was left. But second of all, it was forbidden. Once the temple was built, it was forbidden to offer sacrifices anywhere else. 
That's why when Gerald Bowen, I'm getting back to Hosea's background, came into office, he said, you know, we've got a problem here. People are going down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, but they might get the idea that that's legitimate, and we up in the North are not legitimate. We don't want that. So he made two golden calves, saying, they make one back down, I'll do better, I'll make two. Set up temple, uh, uh, centers of worship in Bethel and Dan, and on the high places, and basically said, you don't have to bother going down to Jerusalem. We've got our local stuff going on. And that's also the sacrifice that God said. This is not permissible. So they couldn't offer it anyplace else. They would have been in violation of the Torah. But just renew them in Jerusalem. Well, but they couldn't. Because the Romans were there? Yeah, I mean, they came in and they you know, didn't believe them. Ten years later. If you know the history, they basically had, uh, they were forbidden from entering in. They couldn't go up on the Temple Mount, they couldn't rebuild. And, and all these, you know, 2,000 years since then, it's always been an initiative for one reason or another. They couldn't rebuild. You do have groups that are looking to rebuild and prepare for it, for sure. Yes? So, in Ezekiel, it talks about a new temple, yes. and new worship, new sacrifice. Can you speak to that, or do you want to speak to that? Um, I might be able to speak to that. I don't want to speak to that. <laughs> and until and unless we've completed everything we have to say about how man can use this with not to convey his message. Yes. Well, I'm not sure how it's sorry. That's okay. Um, um, I think that you, if I understood you right, you were comparing Jesus' disciples to the priests and the same way that the priests were innocent because they were commanded to eat bread, etc., etc., and the disciples were innocent. There were also some parallels, it seemed to me, between, between Jesus' disciples and David's companions. So could you help me understand what's going on there? I, you know, I'm not sure if I can because it's a little vague to me. I think that the phrase, David and those who are with him, reminds me of Jesus and those who are with him. And that's what first started, got me started thinking about the release of the apostles. In that example with David, there were exigent circumstances. There was no Torah that required him to eat, or anything that he was doing that required him to eat. So it was like, they were probably in bad shape. I get the idea from the narrative they were in bad shape. Whether it was actually necessary to literally save their lives or not, maybe it's possible if they didn't eat for much longer. And that seems to be different from what's going on with the disciples, who it's just hard to believe that they were in danger of dying if they didn't get this grain in their bellies. And Jesus didn't need it either. So it's unclear to me what the analogy is there, to be honest. But so I wish I could help you out. The second example makes perfect sense to me. The first one is unclear because then, in a sense, uh, He's setting up two different criteria for them being permitted to do the one act, which just doesn't make sense to me. So when somebody comes up with an explanation that accounts for all those things, I will happily yield. I'm serious. I really want to understand what's going on. I believe that it can be understood. It wasn't left there as a measure that we cannot understand. But I ran out of time. Uh, to hand it to anybody with that man. Could you help me with the citation thing? It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could um, we have quoted Hosea 6, 
one or three instead of what he voted and accomplish exactly the same thing? Yes. Now, you were, was it you? I think it was your brother said that the, he, he, yeah, was him, when uh, he was studying uh, uh, Isaiah and he looked at the quotations in the New Testament, he saw, oh, they're referring to much more than just the text itself. And so usually we figure that, well, it's referring to the context. I actually think that the context is the text that's being referred to, but they didn't have any way to refer to. Now, I arrived at the same conclusion for a completely different reason, because I studied Jewish commentaries that were written in the centuries following, and this is beyond doubt what they sometimes do. You cannot, sometimes you, you actually you read the citation, the quotes, and it literally it leaves you scratching your head. You cannot understand. You go to the Bible, you look at it, and say, oh, of course, that's what it means. And I, mean, I brought an example with me, but, you know, I, could, I don't think I'm going to do it right now, but, but, but it's, it's clear, it's incontrovertible. There are cases where they refer to something by words that are not the focus of what is being said. They're looking at passages. And although they usually quote passages from the beginning, there's no consistency there either. They just did not have a consistent way to refer to passages until chapters and verses were invented. And so when I began to read Matthew from that perspective, I was looking backwards in history, and the brother was looking forward. And we met exactly at the right point. So, so I think it's, it's a bit of an art to determine what exactly is going to be And what is the text and what's the context.